Much Ado About the AQ, Episode 7, The Ed. Hello, welcome to uh, a, I suppose our first visual edition, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, of Much Do About the AQ. Um, we, we're also putting it obviously on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts and normal places, but for the first time we're recording on Zoom from our own houses uh, online. So apologies for any poor sound quality. I left my microphone at work because I'm a cretin um, and Christian is just not very good at things like that. So, <laughs> um, yeah. We've established yeah. this, yeah. Yes, so apologies. Um, so some exciting news to begin with. Our next two episodes are actually going to be um, our first special guest. Uh, we have the inestimable um, Elizabeth Winkler who will be joining us next week, um, author of um, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Um, and she is she was a fantastic guest. I mean, we've recorded them both. She was genuinely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following week, um, the the outstanding, hugely erudite, brilliant uh, Dr. Ros Barber of Goldsmith Dest- University. Yeah, destroyer um, destroyer of sycamore theories. <laughs> yes, indeed. I was going to mention that. Um, and we do have some errata to to mention of a Sample. previous episode. Oh yes. Um, yes. So um, it turns out that the uh, the theory relating to the sycamores um, that has been put forward that uh, Shakespeare couldn't have possibly known about them. They only grow on the east side of uh, is it Verona? I think it's the west side of Verona, outside west the city gates. Yeah. Yeah, and then it turns out they've not been there very long at all. Yeah, they're younger than me. <laughs> yeah, and um, not me. I'm I'm still having that, but yeah. um, they're they're not very old these trees whatsoever. So um, not a valid theory, and we're not here to spread disinformation. Mm. So that's kind of. Um, a little bit of a faux pas, but we're glad to be corrected. So thank you, Dr. Barber, for that. And please do listen in in a couple of weeks for more from her. Um, that's also a video one. Um, we, we've since discovered that um, Zoom, when it records, if you if you put someone as the pinned person, it only records their face. Yep. So um, look forward to... Can I, can I just mention that I wore a shirt for both those interviews? Uh, I didn't. So... You didn't? Okay, right. <laughs> I, I just I wore two. <laughs> I just thought um, I'd be middle class about this. But anyway. <laughs> um, the, to the, tonight's episode also brought to you. It is the evening. Um, <laughs> hence my Christmas tree lights being on. And it's in December. Tonight's episode brought to you by Belgian beer. <laughs> Thank you, Belgium, for providing us with beer. Uh, I I don't have any to show, but some has been imbibed. But I'm over eighteen, so it's all good. It's all fine. Yeah, um, I am just about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, what first start with um, what we're reading this week? Um, I uh, we had the great fortune today <clears> to um, pay a visit to the the Marlow Society's library, and by visit I mean obtain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it was a, basically a ram raid. <laughs> yes, um, we did. I mean, we didn't do that much ramming, but we certainly did raid. Yes. <laughs> so well, now we. Yes. Now we have the Marlow Society Library. Um, it's now being hosted at the school where we work. We we are the curators, as it were, of the Marlow Society Library. Yeah. Um, we are the, the keepers of it. Um, 
although it does still very much belong to the Marlowe Society. Um, and hello to them if, if you are listening. Um, the, thank you very much for your help today as well um, in moving it. So I have um, borrowed from the Marlowe Society Library um, H. Amphlet's uh, book, Who Was Shakespeare? Mm. A, um, an awesome question a book that neither of us had heard of. No. Um, it does have an introduction by Christmas Humphreys, which is the greatest name I've seen in all of today. Yes. Um, but yeah, so far I'm only, I'm not far in. Um, I'm using a, a um, 1960 newspaper cutting that I found in the aforementioned um, Milo Library as a bookmark. I'm only 20 pages in. Uh, so far, I mean, nothing new, but um, it's, it's very good. It's quite, enjoy- quite an enjoyable read. Mm. Yeah, I'm reading, um, and this is kind of a, a combined shout-out advertisement and what I'm reading notice. I'm reading Francis Bacon's Contribution to Shakespeare, A New Attribution Method um, by Dr. Barry R. Clark. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and I did say to Joe earlier that I would use this opportunity, this filmic opportunity to thank uh, Dr. Clark for reaching out to us and emailing and um, offering to come on the show, the podcast, whatever. Uh, and, and, and yes, we, we, we definitely accept your, your offer. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll, we'll have you on in the new year, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but you'll have seen in the Twitter feed, those of you who follow my uh, uh, craziness online, uh, that I've been looking at the book and, and, and posting snippets about it. And I think the, the thing I've noticed that's most relevant without delving in further really because it's all in the twitter feed is that this is a routledge studies in shakespeare publication which Hmm. kind of it gives the lie to the theory that um mainstream so-called scholarly uh publishing houses won't uh publish uh books uh texts on the on the aq or as we have been saying all day on aq adjacent theories Hmm. um this is dr clark's uh, 2014 Brunel University PhD, and it's um, let's just say it's beyond stylometrics, and it's into something that he he nameth. Um, of course, I won't I won't be able to find it, will I? Because I'm I'm terrible at kind of prepping. Um, but um, it's it's something. Here we go. It's the RCP method of stylistic analysis, which is the rare collocation method. Um, <clears throat> so obviously. That's what I'm reading. You'd want to read it, people at home listening in, yep. uh, to understand. It's a fantastic book so far. I'm a bit like Joe. I'm 30 pages in, and so far it's just kind of rehearsing and, and, and analysing the usual kind of why the guy from Stratford wasn't the author of the plays. But so far, very interesting book. Yep, and uh, when we're both done with those, we'll swap them over and uh, each read the other because um, they're both really interesting. Other than that, I'm also, um, I'm also doing some research at the moment. My current research focus is on the death of Hamnet Shakespeare uh, because I'm looking for any evidence of his death having any influence whatsoever on the Bard's work. Um, so far, I've not turned up anything. No, nope. no, it's interesting because a lot of uh, Stratfordians, we keep referring to them in that way, but I suppose that's the best way to, to proceed. Uh, they, mm. they reference the Hamnet death, <clears throat> um, not, not, the, you know, not the death of Judith or Susanna, it's just Hamnet, Hamnet, Hamnet. Um, as significant and as informing the uh, the the uh, creation of of Hamlet, as though Hamnet and Hamlet were interchangeable names, they are not. Um, it, it's interesting as well that um, he, his son Hamnet dies, and then a few years later he happens to read uh, a Dutch text called Amleth and thinks, mm. "Hmm, I should combine these two things." 
Yes. Uh, Danish. Yes. Yes. Sorry, Danish text. I'd, yeah. I blame the beer. But yeah, Belgian text. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely right. I mean, Saxo Grammaticus's uh, doings of the Danes is, uh, you know, kind of a huge compendious volume all about Danish history, which features a narrative about Amlet, A M L E T H. So that's the origin, you know, kind of etymologically of the name Hamlet. Hamlet is a near correspondence and it has no other bearing on it. And as we were saying the other day, if you want to commemorate your dead son, and I say I, I choose my words extremely carefully, um, would you really choose to do so through the medium of a play that turns your son into a 30-year-old incel with the hots <laughs> for his mum who goes mad and tries to kill kings? <laughs> it's just not and you're dead the entire time. Yeah, and you, you've also killed yourself. Um, yeah. it, it, it's up there with the uh, the theory that Macbeth is a homage of some kind to uh, James the First, Stroke the Sixth, um, but but improbably so because it it creates a play in which a Scottish king is shanked in his yeah. bed. I mean, because, because James the First had no concerns whatsoever about being assassinated. No, I believe he was. He slept easily at night. Yeah, it was yeah he was fine. not not even slightly paranoid, and so seeing a play about a king being murdered in his bed wouldn't even be slightly triggering for him. It's not as though the previous monarch had killed his mum. No, I mean that hadn't happened. So yeah, I mean that's a yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. And no, no one had ever attempted to explode him or anything. No, that didn't happen either. Um, <laughs> yeah, so if you're doing a homage to near and you know nearest and dearest and next of kin, I, I I would definitely suggest don't kill them in your play or make them seem mad. Uh, yeah, top tip. We we will do a full analysis of Hamlet at some point because I think we have to. I think it's compulsory. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously this evening, ce soir, we we are intending to go through the the list of blessed memory. Here it is. Uh, <laughs> you actually get to see the list. Yes, I mean, I've referred to this thing so many times and it's like it's an old friend. It's kind yep. of mildew. It's, uh, it's faded and uh, smelly. Um, but it's it's point twenty two onwards. But yeah, in terms of this kind of like whole shakedown of Hamlet, that's what John Dover Wilson offers in his uh, essay, What Happens in Hamlet. And just yet another inevitable shout out to Aunt Lord Dean because he recommended that book. Um, and obviously I, I'm the guy that's read um, G. Wilson Knight, and T.S. Eliot and Harold Bloom, everybody on Shakespeare, uh, Coleridge, you name it. And I'd not read Wilson, not certainly not uh, um, the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, that was a fantastic essay. So we should do the same thing. We should do a John Dover Wilson analysis of Hamlet, scene mm. by scene, but from a uh, unique, ludic, anarchic perspective. Ludic, anarchic is the, the best way to describe I think the I've got closed captions on um, for no real reason, but it's it's heard as ludicrous anarchic, and I love it. <laughs> it's not wrong. <laughs> so uh, Devere, Devere, ce soir. Yes. Yeah, so um, not that any of these uh, emissions, as it were, are seamless, but we did leave off at point twenty-one, uh, and really, what what this is to do with is Hamlet. I mean, this is. Um, Essentially, although it's Ayer's book, E-Y-R-E, it's the loony thesis or the loney thesis, um, which is all to do with tying uh, the, the, the Shakespeare corpus or canon, but specifically Hamlet the play to um, De Vere. Um, and just, just, just a little moment that we had today, Joe and I, in the, uh, uh, the, the research centre at our school, we, we were going through all the books from the Marlowe Library and we found an original 1920 edition 
of J. Thomas Looney's uh, The Man Who Was Shakespeare, or whatever it was called. I've got no Shakespeare identified, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it was just what, a fantastic moment. Um, yeah, very exciting. I mean, more, more exciting than it should have been, potentially, but it's been a very <laughs> long day. Oh, yeah. We, we, yeah, we found an original loony and it made us extremely happy men. Um, but we're, we're normal and otherwise married and have children and things. Um, yes. Yes, yeah, we're, we're totally regular people. Um, <laughs> so kind of riffing on the loony theme, this is air. Um, I, I'll, I'll just quote liberally. But point 22, uh, this is to do with uh, essentially killing people with swords. So uh, air writes, Hamlet's stabbing of Polonius, pardon me. <laughs> I've just... Uh, You're right up there. Yeah, no, I'm... I've, I've there we go. Please edit that out. I'm going to literally edit that nope. one out. Hang on. <laughs> okay. Hamlet's stabbing of Polonius with a single sword thrust, Act 3, Scene 4, was similar in manner to De Vere's killing of the servant Thomas Brinknell. Um, and what I picked up in my extensive research of this event is that uh, De Vere's at um, Cecil House on the Strand in London, and he's practising his rapier because he's an earl and uh, some lackey called uh, uh, Brinknell, uh, B-R-I-N-C-K-N-E-L-L, basically walks past at the wrong time. He's killed with a rapier thrust to the thigh uh, on a summer, on a summer's evening in July, 1567. Um, Now that isn't quite the same as the death of Polonius in the play, but um, it's certainly not too far off. Uh, either. Uh, so Air Notes, page 127.23, that Brignall and Polonius were both in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. Uh, it's not the only um, it's not the only killing that uh, De Vere was involved with, though, that seems to link quite closely to Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, so uh, digging further, and, and I've posted this to the Twitter feed as well. Um, so uh, De Vere apart from being estranged from his wife, Anne Cecil, who is essentially Ophelia in Hamlet, um, he had a uh, liaison, uh, very dangereuse, as it happens, with a, a, a woman called Anne Vavasor, or Vavasor, um, as a result of which a child was uh, was engendered. And Queen Elizabeth got wind of this, and obviously she was quite paranoid about events at court, possible rivals, factions forming, and so on. <clears throat> and so she had De Vere sent to the Tower, and the pregnant Anne Vavasor. Um, but on his release, um, De Vere got into a fight with her uncle in the streets of London. I don't really know where. Um, and then as a result of that, several people were killed, or at least one person was killed. And it, and it has that whiff of Act 1, Scene 1 of Romeo and Juliet. Um, running mm. street battles, people being killed, people intervening. Um, obviously, I'm not saying one thing is the same as the other, but it, it seems to me that we're back in this kind of uh, domain of biographical correspondence. And that's, that's really quite interesting as it applies to, to Oxford. Although, you know, Marlowe was also on several occasions uh, involved in running street battles and people were killed when he was present, although he didn't um, dispatch anybody himself, as far as I know. Um, And obviously in Elizabethan England, everybody went equipped. You had a dagger, Mm. a blade. And if you're a gentleman, you had a sword, but, uh, th- these are interesting um, kind of tidbits of information. And as I always say, um, all of these things pointing Marlowe Woods or De Vere Woods, we don't have a single anecdotal shred of evidence that points Stratford Woods. We just don't. 
no, and um, and yes, you can say it's all anecdotal and it's all biographical. Yes, it is, but there's so much of it mm. that eventually all of this um, evidence has to mean something. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, we've we've spoken about this before. It's the accumulation of uh, correspondences and biographical detail uh, mm. that that is most um, provocative. Um, Right, point twenty-four. Uh, I mean, this is this is more of the same, really. It's an, it's a link point, but it takes you directly to <clears throat> Act Five, Scene One uh, of Hamlet. So Brinknell, uh, having rushed between Oxford and uh, whoever he was dueling with or training with, uh, was a judge to have committed suicide, if you can believe it. I mean, this is this is the privilege of power. You know, this is the proud man's contumely and all that, the insolence of office. Um, mm. Cecil regretted this judgment, I am told, as it left Brinknell's widow penniless. The dead man's widow was made destitute by the suicide verdict as his goods were forfeited and church burial denied. I mean, there's an instant whiff of Ophelia there. Mm. Um, so Cecil thought a better verdict. Bearing in mind, we, we hear a lot of kind of uh, animus against Cecil, but this is him trying to ensure that a uh, recently bereaved widow isn't left destitute, he thought that a better verdict in the case of Brinknell would have been self-defense rather than suicide. Um, now, in Latin, the verdict would have been se defendendo. Now, the gravedigger in Hamlet uh, says that Ophelia has died se offendendo. Okay? So, essentially, with that and the Argyll references from the gravedigger, you've got some kind of quips on, you know, kind of plebs who don't understand their Latin. But it seems almost as though De Vere is uh, referencing his own uh, brush with Brinknell and how that corresponds with the Ophelia death and, and looks forward to the duel with uh, Laertes. It's just, again, it's just fantastically biographically um, provocative. There's even there's a sense of regret in the death of Ophelia, but it almost seems to be, um, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. The burial scene is ridiculous. Mm. And and you could argue that that's Devere pointing out the sheer stupidity of all of the the two of them are wrestling in a grave. Mm. Yeah, well, we we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? That the the whole well, there are other parts of Hamlet that have improbable moments, mm. uh, and they're very hard to fathom because in the whole kind of warp and weft of the play as a kind of theatrical construct, these scenes don't make any sense. Um, I mean, you were referencing earlier this um, this moment during the murder of Gonzago and the mousetrap where Hamlet's making kind of um, country matters jokes yeah. with Ophelia. Um, you know, I mean, that that's kind of like superficially comedic, but it has no bearing on the plot. Um, yeah, and, and Ophelia, whom in the previous scene he was told to get to a nunnery, mm. and, yes. and then she just seems to brush off this very strange flirtation Mm. immediately and ask him what's going on with the mousetrap in the very kind of bland way that mm. she does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She says he's, a, he's as good as a prologue and then he's better than one. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wonder if she's just shocked. You know, maybe that, that explains at least her half of the dialogue. She can't believe what she's hearing. But as for him, um, absolutely improbable, really. Mm. Um, okay, point 25. Interesting. Uh, it, we're going through all the way to 31 tonight because I added yep. one to the list. So I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's a very short one. Um, <laughs> so th this is interesting because another way of reading the whole Hamlet uh, being flirty with Ophelia is to see it as a way of signaling to his mum 
the fact that, um, as he says, his metal more attractive. You know, he's kind of interested in someone who's not Gertrude, mm. uh, trying to provoke her, her jealousy, perhaps. Now, that's the Ernest Jones, Oedipal reading version of things. But what if uh, this was to do with De Vere's relationship with Elizabeth, either as a courtier, <clears throat> uh, pardon me, a would-be suitor, uh, a son, a lover, both, all... Now, I know we're into the Prince Tudor theory, but um, I know serious scholars have left the uh, have left the chat at this point. Uh, not that they were <laughs> ever there, but, you know, um, th- this 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 kind of picks up on this next point. So um, De Vere uh, enjoyed Elizabeth's patronage as a young courtier. I mean, she was at his wedding. He was at her coronation. Um, he, he was a very, very prominent courtier. But then he fell out of favor. He was allotted only token military commands was denied membership of the Privy Council, was regularly voted down for a garter knighthood and was refused the governorship of Jersey. I mean, that would really piss me off as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I do like an island. Um, and also the presidency of Wales and the lucrative Cornish tin mining franchise, all sinecures that he coveted. So uh, in, in the world of the court, then, yeah, the, these things matter. And he, he didn't have access to any of them. Um, so then we kind of pivot back to... <clears throat> Hamlet and his comment to Rosencrantz, Act 3, Scene 2, uh, Sir, I lack advancement. You know, this idea that he's the heir apparent, and yet he says he he doesn't have any future. He's got no hope of uh, advancement or promotion. Um, but if you read it biographically as some kind of Deverian reference, it makes a bit more sense. Mm. Um, and, and Air also references Sonnet 29, uh, which Stratfordians remember, along with Hamlet, say are the most autobiographical texts in the canon. <clears throat> um, when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I alone, uh, I all alone, beweep my outcast state. You know, why Why would the writer, if it is De Vere of Hamlet and, and, and the sonnets, bewail or beweep his, his outcast state? Well, it's because um, although he was later granted an annuity of a thousand pounds by Elizabeth, there was that terrible period of being um, in the household of William Cecil and, and denied a series of, of kind of um, uh, very, very lucrative um, um, kind of like sources of income. Um, and then later uh, getting in trouble with Elizabeth, denied all these other kind of sinecures and whatnot that he was he was seeking. So, uh, again, it, it kind of takes you back to Hamlet. And it's it's just one of those things that is massively suggestive. And could certainly be applied to Marlowe as well, though, who was very much an outcast towards the end of his life. Uh, yeah, I mean, having done the Queen good service overseas and whatnot and, and, and been very naughty and almost not got his uh, MA from Cambridge, um, yeah, he he then falls foul of, of the Privy Council. Um, obviously, the, the Baines note, the accusations of homosexuality, atheism, um, the, the whole kind of whiff of this improper relationship with Sir Thomas Walsingham. Yeah. I mean, this could also be a Marlowe uh, and mm. that, that is, I mean, we, again, we, we've chatted a lot about this today, but um, I think on the Marlowe reading, yes, you do have to take into account the fact that Marlowe himself may, had he survived 1593, have had very similar feelings to De Vere. Um, mm. he's, he's gone into witness relocation in Ravenna or wherever it is. And he, and he too feels that he is, uh, beweeping his outcast state. So yeah, yeah. Just um, we we do consider all of the possible <clears throat> um, eventualities. We're not we're not set in stone as as um, Oxfordians. 
No. Although it's the way I lean more than any other. Uh, yeah, I too lean Oxford Woods. <clears throat> but just to kind of reference um, Barry Clark's, Dr. Clark's book again, um, I'm reading this because I was uh, talking to Kate Cassidy. Hello, Kate. Uh, author of Secret Work of an Age. Quick plug. Mm-hmm. Available on Amazon. Go and buy a copy. <clears throat> I was talking to her about um, uh, the bacon uh, uh, angle. And uh, what, what I said to her is, is there like an equivalent of Looney, War or Hoffman? for bacon and then she's very interested in 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 kind of synchronicity and serendipity and and all the rest of it literally i don't actually know i mean he reached out to us didn't he so yeah he, he just he just pops into our inbox as it were and now i'm reading this book on bacon so um not only are we not uh refusing to listen to alternative theories including the stratford thesis but mm. no one seems to propose that very vigorously it's just assumed. Um, yeah, the standard position yeah, with, with yeah. little evidence to back it up. And, and, and as two people with English degrees and the rest, and, and with between us getting on for 40 years of English teaching experience, mm-hmm. of course we know what the Stratfordian position is because we lived and breathed it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it is interesting the way kind of things kind of coincide. And suddenly I'm reading a book on, on Bacon, about whom I knew very little. And mm. whether or not I uh, really go for the, you know, Bacon was involved in the first folio, Bacon was heavily involved in the production of the plays of Shakespeare theory or not, uh, the, the guy was hugely intriguing. Um, yeah. I, I've learned so much about him recently. <clears throat> um, and I'll pick up on a point about, about him in a second. That would be point 27, but this is point 26. Um, in April 1576, on his return home from travels in France, Germany and Italy, pertinent, mm. uh, the Italian at Earl, uh, De Vere's ship was intercepted and boarded by sea robbers. They're not called pirates. It's very politically correct. This sea robbers, <laughs> not stealing only... the sea, <laughs> robbing it. Yeah, is that just fishermen? <clears throat> well, I, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I might write to Mister Eyre or his estate and and suggest a, a revision. Um, <laughs> not only were his chests and boxes stolen, but his expensive clothes were stripped off, and he, Oxford, was roughly treated. Um, on the above loss of clothes, compare Hamlet's comment, I am set naked in your kingdom of, of act, in Act 5 of Hamlet. Um, and obviously Hamlet is also boarded by pirates on his way to England uh, on the command of Claudius to go and collect the tribute from the English. Uh, during which voyage, of course, he fingers packets and gets up mm-hmm. to all kinds of shenanigans on board, but also um, apparently repels a, a piratical assault on his person, makes friends with the pirates. I think that's brilliant. Um, yep. And and then they they, they sail him back to Denmark. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the most exciting scene to happen off stage in any Shakespeare play. Yeah, I mean it should have been in the play, shouldn't it? I mean, yeah. hoist with your own petard and all that stuff about fingering the packet. Just just Rosencrantz and Grillenstern's faces when they realise that he's he's kind of double crossed them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that would be a fantastic scene. The English court as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the king opens his letter, um, looks just, up at them. I mean, on that, I mean, I don't know, and I'm going to embarrass myself if I've forgotten, but I don't think that scene is picked up on by Tom Stoppard in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. No. I don't think he goes there either. So, I mean, tell us if we're wrong, but um, if so, I will reread it as a penance. But yeah, I mean, that would be an amazing scene. But yeah, it's just skimmed over. But William Shaxper of Stratford, 1564 to 1616, does not, as far as I'm aware... Uh, have any, uh, w- w- did never, as far as I'm aware, uh, uh, sail anywhere 
still less was boarded by pirates, still less was landed in Denmark after the event. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me is uh, pertinent. Um, right, <clears throat> pardon me, point 27. So we're, we're into uh, kind of like the historical, but also literary underpinnings of Hamlet um, and how it came to be written. So uh, William Cecil's library, <clears throat> which we know was extensive, I mean, probably not as big as John Dee's, but stunningly uh, well-equipped. Um, it contained a text called Belforest, which I imagine is Belforet in French, Histoire Tragique, Tragic Histories or Tragic Stories. Now, that's one of the primary sources of Hamlet. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of Saxo Grammaticus here and Belforest over there. Um, so that was written in French, okay, and De, uh, De Vere spoke French. Now, again, that's not conclusive, but Billy Boy didn't speak French, as far as I'm aware. Uh, not that, very wasn't, well. that wasn't on the curriculum at the Stratford Grammar School, which he may not have attended anyway. I was, um, I was reading about this earlier. Apparently, um, the Stratford Grammar School was um, that the the Shakespeare's were were quite well known um, Catholics, hmm. and the head teacher at the time was very much Protestant, and so it's quite likely John Shakespeare would never have sent his son there. Yeah, when you read James Shapiro's contested will, he argues the other way, which is to say his father was a prominent merchant. He'd been you know, Lord Mayor or Alderman or, or what have you, but fails to mention uh, anything about his religious leanings. Um, yeah, because because England had no issues with the two religions at the time. No, I think they everything was fine. Quite nicely, yeah. I mean, yeah, very good terms with each other. I mean, there wasn't a continental land war about it or anything like that. No, nothing like that was going. <clears> no, no, no. Armadas didn't happen. So, uh, yeah. Oh, and this this is the thing. About, <laughs> this is the brilliant thing I found out about Francis Bacon because no doubt in previous podcasts are. Many thousands of Baconian listeners have, have, have been screaming at their um, device. Uh, why do you keep saying that it's significant that De Vere was a ward, a royal ward in the household of Cecil? So was Bacon. So just to kind of put that one firmly on the record, Sir Francis Bacon, um, philosopher, statesman, scientist, him, he was also a ward of court at Cecil House. Yeah. Um, so that gives him access to everything we just talked about, all the primary texts for Shakespeare, for, for Hamlet, sorry, um, access to um, uh, William Cecil's long-winded after-dinner speeches, his uh, uh, precepts to uh, Thomas Cecil, a.k.a. Laertes. So, yeah, I, I acknowledge that in terms of autobiographical proximity to one of the major figures influencing Hamlet... Bacon's claim is as good as De Vere's. Almost as if, if there was some sort of group theory that Bacon and De Vere would have some kind of link to one another. Back to Barry. <laughs> uh, yeah, Barry Barry calls the, the De Vere or the Marlowe or the Derbyite or the Countess of Pembroke, blah, blah, blah theory, a single hand theory for obvious reasons. Uh, and what we call a group theory, he calls a multiple hand theory because obviously he's interested more in uh, stylometrics and mm -hmm. text analysis, but it's the same thing, obviously. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he himself is not married to the proposition that it has to be bacon, do or die, because that you paint yourself into a series of corners with that. Um, when Ros Barber's brilliant interview uh, is put out uh, in, a, in, a, in a few days, weeks, whenever we do it, you'll hear her talking about um, the fact that although Marlowe has a super strong claim in her view, lots of textual parallelisms 
and so forth. Um, she, she herself is happy to dwell in that Keatsian negative capability, which mm. Elizabeth Winkler talks about when she interviews uh, Ros Barber for her brilliant book. Um, and, and that's that state of not yet forming a, an opinion that is definite and concrete because there is not sufficient evidence upon which to base that opinion. Uh, and then you have to compare that to people from, let's say, the other side of the aisle who, who get to very profoundly concrete conclusions based on what I would describe as wiki biography. Mm. Uh, so just, I thought I'd be a bitch tonight. So there you go. That's my bitchy moment. <laughs> it's the beer. It's out of my system. Yeah. Apart from the, well, the beer, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Point 28 of 31. Uh, I have no idea how far in we are. Are we, are we going to be kicked off again or? Oh no. Um, we've, we've got good zoom now. Okay. Right. <laughs> good zoom. Like it. Okay. Um, the two sons of Oxford's Uncle Geoffrey okay, provided the nation with its most renowned soldiers, air rights, Sir Horace Veer and his younger brother, Francis Veer. Mm-hmm. Well, they sound like Horatio and Francisco in Hamlet. Now, no one's yep. saying they are, but, you know, with the Peregrine Bertie ambassador to Denmark related to De Vere angle, with the multiple accumulative kind of biographical uh, uh, details linking um, uh, De Vere to uh, the play. If you add in a, a Horace Horatio and a Francis Francisco, then it, it does sound awfully, uh, again, provocative. Uh, those two guys were known as the Fighting Veers, and Horace was actually called Sir Horatio Veer, 1565 uh, to 1635, Oxford's cousin. Again, uh, it's not so much that that's a slam dunk as I'm waiting to hear Stratford boys link to anything in Denmark. Yep. Could he find it on a map? I don't know. Um, okay, point 29. Uh, th- yeah, this is to do with that very strange relationship between Oxford and his wife Anne, uh, or Hamlet Ophelia. Uh, Oxford was at sea on active service when his wife Anne was buried. Uh, that's the 5th of June, 1588. And that mirrors uh, Hamlet's absence from Ophelia's funeral service. Now, obviously, you could say, well, no, he was meant to be packed off to England to be killed. So in the text, he's not on active uh, military service and whatnot. But he is, he is on a boat. And mm. uh, I believe Oxford was involved with the Armada fleet or with the engagement with the Armada. So um, given that the year Oxford was at sea was 1588, which is Armada year, uh, I actually think, no, that is actually a very good correspondence to Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, It's never conclusive, but given that we've had three videos on this guy (laughs) and any number of points, uh, you know, this is where I think this is where we got with Devere. It's kind of uncanny and unsettling, and you just can't explain it away. Um, Right. Point 30 of 31. Thank God. Here we go. Uh, Nearly there. (laughs) It's only taken about six months. Yeah. Henry Peacham's exhaustive exhaustive list of English poets, The Complete English Gentleman, published in 1622, uh, references, obviously, the best English poets of the, the time. The list that Peacham produces in that text is headed by Edward, Earl of Oxford, but omits any reference to a poet named Shakespeare. Mm. Um I mean, you, you again, we were talking today, you've got Paladis to Tamia by uh, Francis Mears, 1598, 
who, who directly references Shakespeare. That's where we get the Sugared Sonnets reference from. But he doesn't say Shakespeare, comma, you know, the guy from Stratford. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, certainly by 1622, when Peachum was writing, the Earl of Oxford was uh, the, the, the daddy. Yeah. Uh, and, and Shakespeare d- didn't get a look in. Um, so that that's interesting and, 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 you know, relevant, I would suggest. And that brings us to the final point. <clears throat> and this is just a throw out point because um, kind of going back to my John Dover Wilson uh, nonsense in his uh, essay, what happens in Hamlet, which everyone should read again. Thank you. And mm. Lord Dean, we, 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 we are not worthy. It was such a good shout out. It's such a good Genuine record. legend. It's just brilliant. It, yeah. um, you know, all the bin night references, you know, all the reminders. Thank you for those as well. Uh, but yeah, you recommended this book and, Dover Wilson refers to, quote, Polonius, the Burley of the Court of Elsinore. That's in uh, John Dover Wilson, What Happens in Hamlet, Appendix Appendix F, page 331. Well, John Dover Wilson is like, I I would imagine, a load of current Stratfordians. He, you know, when we read the uh, Arden Edition footnotes to Hamlet, and they say, this line is also used by Marlowe, uh, or... That you know, Polonius is taken as a caricature of William Cecil, Lord Burley. I always think, why don't you follow that thought to its logical conclusion? <laughs> and 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 Dover Wilson doesn't. I just think he was scared. But if Polonius is the Burley of the Court of Elsinore, it, it follows that he is Burley. And then obviously that gives you two possible um, candidates. It gives you a Devere here and a, a Bacon there. But why not both? You know, you don't have to choose between them. Yeah, need so to that's my list. Fantastic. So, um, Devere, um, there's, there, I mean, there's definitely more to say. Uh, one thing we were discussing earlier today was that um, we, we were amazed that uh, Shakespeare, who had no, as far as, I mean, there was no record of having any formal education, but he certainly didn't go to university because there would be a record there, um, even if he did go to, to grammar school. Mm-hmm. And yet no one seems to be annoyed. None of the university-educated writers seem to be particularly annoyed that this upstart is is creating in in this way. And um, uh, this this no no marks, no education guys just come up and then with all their fancy, expensive schooling has not. And yet people would be bitter about this. And um, and we've already debunked the the green. Uh, I'm not having that. Yeah, I mean, Robert Greene's attack in the Grotesworth of Wit pamphlet, if he wrote it, <clears throat> pardon me, um, you know, the one that talks about the upstart crow and the shake scene. Mm. Um, if that's not Ned Allen, founder of Dulwich College, et cetera, and it probably is because, you know, shake, um, upstart crow, uh, he was from a family. Of the Magpie, who, wasn't he? Absolutely. His, 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 his family for, for over 200 years, I think, in the end, they, they ran a pub called the, the Pie. And obviously mm-hmm. the pie is uh, magpie and magpies yeah. are corvids and corvids are crows. And that's the upstart crow. But if it isn't him, <clears throat> as a lot of scholars think it is, and it is Shakespeare, um, <clears throat> what you've been told is that this is a guy who takes plays that don't belong to him and he beautifies himself with other people's feathers. You know, he literally steals other people's texts, ideas, yeah. themes. Um, and, and, and obviously on the back of that, as we discussed earlier today, You've got Johnson's epigram on poetape. And uh, again, a lot of mainstream scholars hold that that is a 
uh, a, a vignette, if you like, on on Shakespeare, Shakespeare, the London boy, uh, as in you know the, the London uh, play manager. Uh, but if it is, what does it tell you? Well, he apes other people's styles. He's a play broker. He buys in uh, plays that have been been on stage elsewhere that that, that aren't mm-hmm. in production anymore. He buys them in, gains the in inverted commas copyright because copyright didn't exist. But hey ho, puts his name on them, probably hyphenated Shakespeare, um, <clears throat> and and that's Johnson's uh, kind of riff on on the Stratford guy. Um, mm. Yeah. But you're right, um, all the university wits, when they were having their battle of the theatres <clears throat> in the late 1590s into the early 1600s, um, Johnson versus uh, Daniels and Marston and all these other people, uh, they, they were bitching and moaning and swiping at one another. Uh, and, it, and it all got very catty. And I imagine they were all kind of bricking it, pun intended, that Johnson <laughs> might, you know, do them in. Um, so why not? Make that the basis of your complaint about Billy Boy from Stratford or Stratty Bill, as I call him now. The 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 most popular, arguably playwright of that specific era. Yeah, and if he was literally a nobody from the provinces, and let, let I mean, people have done this before. Let's grant him <clears throat> five years education at Stratford Grammar School, where English wasn't taught, by the way. Um, what would he have left with? Well, he would have left with the same kind of thing that everybody else in the country had, and no more. But if you compare that to a Johnson at Westminster or a Marlowe at King's and Corpus Christi uh, or a De Vere at the Inns of Court. And I mean, uh, you know, De Vere's uh, Oxford and Cambridge degrees were honorary and that was like weaponized and used against me a, a few months ago. Like uh, that means he wasn't intelligent. <laughs> he, he was privately tutored by William Cecil. Queen Elizabeth was privately tutored. So it seems to me that mm. that's a senseless and stupid quibble by Stratfordians. Um, well, you, you know who wasn't given any kind of honorary degrees? <laughs> William Shakespeare. Really? Yeah. Hey, didn't he? Didn't he have to buy his coat of arms? And wasn't he? Uh, yep. Wasn't he denied it on the first application? I think he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surely somebody at the uh, records office or whatever it was <clears throat> was like, "No, hang on a minute. This is this guy from Stratford who wrote Lear and Othello yeah. and the sonnets." You, you think when when Othello and, and and Hamlet came out, they would have maybe thought about giving him some kind of honorary degree? I'd have thought so. I'd have thought maybe throw in a, a knighthood or something. God knows, yeah. yeah. Maybe a minor dukedom. Uh, Some kind uh, of title, which, of course, he never he never got. Yeah, the kind of title given to Sir William Cecil, for example, who wasn't born an aristocrat. You know, little things like that. Um, yeah, it, it has been a day of uh, uh, extra information and uh, kind of like really kind of mapping mm. our ideas. It's been a really good day in that respect. Yeah. Um, I was going to say uh, another book we looked at was uh, it, this. This was in the Marlowe Library collection, by the way. You Baconians, um, it's a text by a chap called Edwin Reed uh, from 1992, and it's called Bacon and Shakespeare Parallelisms. Mm-hmm. So I just thought I'd throw that in there because uh, the the normal kind of uh, expectation is Marlowe and Shakespeare. Yeah, uh, pardon me, parallelisms, but. Um, there are Baconian ones in the mix as well. So, uh, yeah. yeah. We, now have, we now have access to this amazing resource, so you'll be getting more and more yeah. uh, research stuff as we, as we get work our way through it. Well, don't and forget, we, we, we also found today, as I mean, we didn't, um, our, our friends from the Marlowe Society were rummaging, and as they had their rummage, they found a first folio uh, 1604, we think-ish, Ish. <clears throat> you know, whatever, some, somewhere around that time, maybe it's like 1620. 
uh, first folio uh, complete works of uh, Beaumont and Fletcher, which which is now at, at, at our school in, in a cupboard locked away, probably. Uh, it's it's been a day of remarkable discoveries, and we uh, we yeah. found we we found Marlowe's wood, didn't we? <laughs> yes, Marlowe's old wood, Marlowe's crusty old wood. We in did. A box. It was in a box. Yeah, we might. <laughs> I, I don't think we should explain that. I think we'll we'll do yeah, that. We'll, we'll leave that as is. In that case, yeah. we'll we'll start the wind down. Yes. Um, thank you ever so much for listening. Uh, if indeed you still are, um, I uh, would love it if you would email us. We we do reply to and read all of our emails. I mean, you've heard us. Um, reading dot reading uh, Dr. Clark's book, he contacted us. And <clears throat> Christian just immediately went and bought his book, yes, and, has, and has begun to read it. So it's um, you know we genuinely love to hear from you. Um, so please do get in touch. We are on um, much ado about the AQ, all one word at gmail dot com. Um, don't write all one word. It's just much ado about the AQ at gmail dot com. We are both on uh, Twitter. Which on uh, which I am uh, at Gun Chicken. Um, and don't I, ask why. I recently I recently changed my name to Much Ado About the AQ, uh, yeah, because of the AQ anon uh, kind of conspiracy nonsense that uh, yeah. actually I was quite interested in at the time, but I gave it up. Don't worry. Uh, but Christian's tag is still indeed AQ underscore anon seven six four eight six. Um, so he is still that on there. I'm also on Blue Sky, which is like Twitter but more sensible. Um, with the same with the same tag, but I haven't put anything on there uh, as of yet. And we will um, have a YouTube channel in the near future, which will of course be called Much to Do About the AQ. When I say the near future, if you're listening to this, then I've set it up by now. So <laughs> now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, go um, watch it. So um, with, with all that done, that's um, Devere uh, put to bed for now. He'll be back. I've no yep. doubt he keeps coming up. Does does old Eddie boy? Yeah. And. Um, Look forward, please, next week to welcoming Elizabeth Winkler, who was a fantastic guest. Uh, the following week to uh, Dr. Ros Barber. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably won't uh, be recording again before Christmas mm-hmm. because um, that's the next two weeks. So have a fantastic uh, holiday season, whatever you celebrate. Mm-hmm. Have a break from work or whatever it is that you do. Uh, don't do that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, do less, eat good food, yeah. spend time with people, etc. Take it easy. Mm. C- consider, um, consider imbibing Belgian beer because it really is very good. Um, yeah, I mean, I was never a Belgian beer man. I was always a, an English beer kind of man. But I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I was converted, but I will certainly consume the odd Belgian now and then. With, with a Kenneth Williams slant, it's better in a chalice. I'll, um, I will, I'll recommend the beer that I have had this evening, which is called Zot. Mm. We'll be backwards on your screen, possibly. Yeah, Zot. Tos. Um I um although usually I will drink Shepanine's double stout mm. um or Eddie Imperial Stout I can get my hands on. I recommend Time and Tide Brewery as well. They're very good. They are fantastic. They do a very good IPA, double IPA, and if you're man enough, a triple IPA. And they do one called Ham Sandwich and uh, Soup Dragon, and that's fantastic. But the best beer in existence is West Marla. West Marla? Vest um, Marla, and I expect them to now uh, sponsor this channel. If if you sponsor us, we would accept payment in crates. Yes, uh, she may. In that case, I also like you, Ho Garden, great fan. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, genuinely, any local Kent brewer, Madcat, are very good. Just give yeah. us a shout. We've spoken too long about beer. Um, no, I'm no, going to sign off. I don't think we've spoken enough. I think we should be sponsored by Time and Tide. I think yeah, um, we'll give them a shout. I'll, I'll send them an email. 
<laughs> uh, all right. Um, thank you again for listening, and um, we will speak to you again soon. You haven't got the bell, have you? I don't have the bell. Look, I- I'm going to do it because it might work, but it might not. But I, I used to work at uh, an local uh, uh, independent uh, boarding establishment, and a-, and a really nice Japanese student got me a Japanese Christmas card, and it plays plays a jingle that is not Japanese. So see if you can pick this up. Uh, I have no idea where the speaker is because it's a card, but let's go for it. You getting that? Just the the most awkward of silences. <laughs> I'm I'm going to make a beer based noise. Thank you for listening, everyone, um, and call in next time. Thank you.